Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello, one and all, and welcome to Book Off, the literary podcast with a difference, where two guests go head to head in a war of the words. I'm Joe Haddo, and today I'm joined by two brilliant authors who have sold a whole heap of books between them and won many literary prizes to boot. My first guest is a contributor to London Review of Books and The New Yorker, as well as the author of five novels, including Capital and his latest, The Wall, which has just been published. It's a pleasure to have you here, John Lanchester. Welcome. Thank you for having me. And I'm also joined by another international best-selling author who started out writing radio plays and running a theatre before turning his hand to writing full-time and publishing 13 novels to date, as well as three travel books and just one on philosophy as well. Welcome to the studio, Douglas Kennedy. Good to be here. It's great to have you both here. And how was the trip to the dentist, Douglas? You, you don't look um, in any pain. I think the trip to the dentist is always... I mean, the idea of a pleasant trip to the dentist is an oxymoron. <laughs> yeah. But a trip to the dentist where you just walk away and think, that was a trip to the dentist, that's fine. That's always a good one. <laughs> exactly. I, 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 my teeth are fine, but uh, my issue is gums. I have gums that would have been embarrassingly bad in a Manchester slum dweller in the 1840s. So <laughs> I, so I envy teeth people. Yes. <laughs> you? There's a very famous conductor, I won't mention his name, I'm a classical music guy, but I, I was talking with him once, and I was thinking, these are Atlee-era teeth, you know? And <laughs> the, the man is very contemporary now, and I was going, how, do, how does that happen? But it's a massive <laughs> issue in, in uh, historical movies that because Very you much, see, yes. you know, they get everything right you know something like Les mm. Miserables they look convincingly horrible and starving and, and all that But and not, everybody's got brilliant yeah. teeth they just can't <laughs> fix the teeth George or can't Washington, unfix the George teeth. Washington had wooden teeth and yeah. there you go and, and he won the revolution <laughs> something in that <laughs> there, there you have it <laughs> yeah. um, over the next half hour or so we're going to talk about uh, your two latest novels both brilliant books which I thoroughly enjoyed uh, and we're going to talk about arts in general and uh, probably a bit of bit of films as well because I know you're, you're a big film buff Douglas in fact you've just been to see Roma which I'm desperate to see And which is a work of absolute genius. And I must see it on the big screen, mustn't I? If I yeah, I, 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 Roma is is a cross between Fellini and Garcia Marquez, mm. but uh, set in seventy one Mexico City. And uh, Corazon is just—he's an astonishing filmmaker, mm. and uh, the visual vocabulary is so rich. Uh, but also just the portrait of family uh, and the dynamics, and it's so underwritten as well, which is. Something I approve of intensely. <laughs> uh, John, I assume you're you're a bit of a film buff yourself. You? I am. Uh, we, just before we went live, in fact, I was talking about we've been debating at home whether to watch Roma at home because mm. it's on Netflix, or to go 
out to the movie and seen and I think Douglas has talked me into um, yeah. schlepping into town. The most recent thing I saw was because of because of the Oscar nominations was rewatched Black Panther with my son because mm. um, we both really liked it the first time around and it was interesting. It's interesting seeing it a second time because the politics are quite striking, especially for a Disney film because it's an odd thing because the angriest character in it, there, um, it there's an uh, a sort of angry black radical and you realise on viewing it a second time that he's actually right. He's the one who wants to burn down the system and he takes a revolutionary approach. And it's actually quite subtle, the film, that you know, below, as we're beneath, below and between the lines of the dialogue, it's actually saying that the person who says that we get com- consistently screwed over, we've got to burn it all down, you know, basically is the one who's telling the truth. Mm. When when you watch, do you watch films again much? Yeah, um, I do actually. Um, it's partly to having kids. Kids mm. love rewatching things. And um, also sometimes for comfort. I know mm. it's not the most grown up reason for watching a film, but there is something. I don't know, reassuring and grounding about seeing something that you really know you're going to like and that you're going to find new things in. Oh, yeah. I, mean, yeah. I think there's certain films you would never watch again. Yeah. Solo. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's probably the worst first date movie in history. Yeah. Maybe yeah, up with the, In the Empire of the Senses. John Frankenheimer's Seconds, which is one of the I've most never seen that. unsettling films I've ever seen. Uh-huh. Forgotten genius film of the early 60s um, about basically... Uh, a corporation that will, if you turn over your assets to them, will make you young again. And then, of course, they pull in the chit, and it's very dark. Um, brilliant, quite brilliant. Mm. Have you seen? Have you seen? I it? haven't. Yeah, no. no, absolutely. Extraordinary. I'm make, making copious notes yeah. down here. But you? I mean, I mean, uh, films I, I watch repeatedly. I, there's certain uncomfortable movies I like to see repeatedly. Uh, Sweet Smell of Success, which I think is possibly the most genius screenplay I've ever come across. Yeah, amazing film. Yeah, The Cat's in the Bag and the Bag's in the River is one of my favorite lines in cinema. And also Kubrick's Paths of Glory, which mm. I think is possibly the greatest anti-war film ever made. I remember Spielberg saying when Kubrick died, um, and he had he has has a private cinema in his house, as you do, and so the next time he had films over, friends over to watch a movie that he wanted to show one of Kubrick's films, and that was the one I was struck by that, that mm. that was the sort of one that, most stayed with him. I think it's one of the things, um, you know, we've at home largely gone over to streaming services for lots of our uh, lots of our telly and movies, and it's the area where they're weak. They're mm. very, very weak on great films from the past. You yes. can basically, any content that's made in the last five, ten years, you can get, you know, with this eerie, miraculous convenience that we've all got used to, but it suddenly goes... Um, you know, very, very thin and patchy when you once you've gone back basically to the to the anything before about twenty ten. Um, you know, you you maybe you'll be able to get it, maybe you won't. Mm. I'm very analog. I'm one of these people who still goes to the cinema, and one of the reasons I live in Paris is small cinemas. Where you it's just, incredible uh, for yeah. that. I mean, it's absolutely, absolutely wonderful. Yeah. And actually, near my flat in Berlin, there's a wonderful cinema called the Babylon. And I was seeing a film director for a while who was Swedish, and I brought her to see a, a new print of Bergman's The Silence, and she had known Sven Nyqvist. And <laughs> we spent an hour afterwards, she, she sat there over a Hefeweizen in the, in the <laughs> local Björstuva explaining camera angles and setups with oh, Nyqvist, wow. which was quite an education. But, I mean, I, I, I think this is wonderful. I grew up at a time in New York City when, one, there was a middle class, and we were members of it. The Upper West Side, where uh, which was the home Cartier was full of bookshops and small independent cinemas. And at the age of 13, being a, a kid with 
intellectual pretensions. I asked for a, a subscription to the Museum of Modern Art for my birthday because the Cinematheque was there. It's still there. And I, this city as well was just full of independent cinemas when I moved over in, in the 80s. I, I mourn the everyman and the scala. He's around the, the corner from my Mankio flat in King's Cross where I live. Yeah. Years. The scala was the scala, fantastic. Yeah, Someone's just scala. done a book about it, about sort of 30 yeah, years right. of... It's, it's not exactly called 30 Years of Grot and Magnificence, but that's basically what it should be called. But that's what it was, yeah. 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 I always remember with my first wife bringing her up to see a, a, a New Year's Day hangover double bill of, of Chinatown and the Long Goodbye uh, at the Everyman. And I mean, that was marvellous with, with an Indian afterwards. I mean, that was a perfect London day. Yeah. <laughs> I want to talk about um, both of your novels because um, they've just been published and they're both very different books but both brilliant and I really enjoyed reading both of them. Uh, John, can I start with you and, and The Wall, which is your, your latest novel? And I, I want to know about this dream that inspired the book. Well, it was a recurring dream. I was part of the way through another novel. I didn't intend to write The Wall. Um, I was part of the way through this other thing and just started having this um, recurring dream that then became one of those almost like the sort of guided dreams you have between being asleep and being awake, a sort of story you... You know, the way that you can sort of put yourself back in a dream sometimes mm. when you get in a pattern of having it. And it was about a, a figure who sort of both was and wasn't me on, on his own in the dark and the cold standing on a wall at night with the water on the other side of the wall. And as I say, I had, had the dream over a sequence of nights and then started to wonder who who he was and then realized that it was really that was a question about what the world was because it's clearly not it was clearly an altered reality or a different reality and and then realized that i was i was imagining a world after climate change that, that that's what had um that's why this world was different that it was a world after catastrophic climate change and that was and then thinking about what that world would be like is what ter really turned into the story mm. and it was the sort of thing you just you just couldn't let go then, so you felt you had to start writing this. Yes, well, all my novels have started life like that, really, as a thing that I couldn't get out of my head. It's not so much that I want to write them, it's just they won't leave me alone. <laughs> and um, I, I, this sort of began pressing on me. And then, so what I thought I'd do was, well, what I'll do is I'll make a start on it while I'm still working on the other book, just to, to see if it keels over and dies um, on kind of exposure to oxygen. And, and actually what happens, I realised that... Um, it was a book I'd be able to write because the other book's a longer one. It's got more moving parts to it that this is a story about one character that I'd be able to finish it sooner. Mm. And there's something very seductive about actually getting to the end of a book. I'm sure Douglas Nez is feeling, you know, you want to, <laughs> you want to have done it. Um, and uh, so I sort of stopped writing the other one, put all my chips on, on red and, and um, doubled down to, to finish it. Is that, Similar for you, Douglas. Do you do your books come to you like that, or or in are they different? In, in there's never the light bulb over the head moment right. where, where suddenly it falls into place. I saw a woman on a beach once who had a very John Singer Sargent face, one of those angular New England faces, in, in front of a tiny house, and an entire 700-page novel about McCarthyism <laughs> came into my head at that moment. I have no idea why and. There's a wonderful line of Somerset Maugham's, which I'm sure John would agree with. There are five basic rules for writing a novel, and nobody knows what they are. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I think that is tattooed, you know, on the subconscious of, of every uh, not a working novelist. 
in the case of the great wide open, my father died in 2014. We were estranged. He was estranged from everyone. He was that kind of fellow. I remember when I got the news, which was via text, um, I was at my Pied-a-Terre in Manhattan, and I walked up to the library on 42nd Street. I called a friend who was in town from London, and he was at a dinner, and he knows I'm a night owl. He said, I can drop over at 1 in the morning. And I said, that's fine. <laughs> and I remember sitting down and actually banging out a thousand words of my new book. It was the only thing I, I felt I could do. And then filling a glass up with rye and taking a cigar and walking to the public library on 42nd Street. And while there, his office, my father's office, had, was just two blocks east. And this moment came back to me when I was 19 years old, and it was the eve of my departure to Dublin to go to Trinity College Dublin. And my father, in his uh, very politically incorrect Brooklyn way, he, he was an expert in sort of B-movie dialogue, said, come on, I'm taking you to my Jap joint, uh, which was his local Japanese restaurant. And he began to drink sakatinis, which are uh, martinis made with sake and vodka. And after three of them, you'll make a pass at a fire hydrant, you know, and, it, uh, and it's sort of in vino stupidus. And we were packing, passing a packet of cattle cigarettes unfiltered back and forth, 1974. It's the era. And my father was old school. And he started telling me the story because he hadn't been running a mine in South America, specifically in Chile. And um, he said, you know, remember all those years I was there and before in Haiti and Algeria running compromise? He said, well, I had another job. And um, it came out that he was working for a well-known organization in, based in Langley, Virginia, called the Central Intelligence Agency. And this guy who I used to call Uncle Joe when I was 10 years old, Joe Sibley, was the actual head of Santiago Station and had been basically implicit in, in plotting the coup against Allende and getting Pinochet ready. And my father was, to use that wonderful Philip Rothism, schnupping the daughter of a member of Pinochet's cabinet. This all came out in a, a great burst. I'm sure it's the moment I became a novelist. Mm. And, all on that night, this was all just... And just, again, in that strange subconscious way that yeah. writers work. And that was the start of this book, which I didn't get around to writing for another 18 months. So it cooked for a while. Yeah, yeah. Cooked for, <laughs> cooked for 40 years. Pretty much, years, yes. Well. Yeah. yeah, blimey. But a very personal book then, I imagine, in some ways. Yes and no. I mean, it's a coming-of-age story. It's, mm. it's, it's, it's a big epic sprawl from 1971 to 1985. It's narrated by a young woman named Alice, who's 15 to the start, and on the eve of Reagan's second election is 30. Um, it's about a family in secrets, uh, a very fractious family. It's about white flight to the suburbs, and essentially the... Uh, the incredibly grim politics of the 70s, um, mm. where, unless I remember this very well, at, at university, you know, and at school, um, sexism, homophobia, racism were very much tolerated. Um, it's also very much about a moment in American life when the culture wars began and the great debate about the state mm. uh, was underway and the way essentially Nixon divided the country. Deliberately and very deliberately, yeah. very consciously. Um, his southern strategy, as he called it, um, to win. He he knew that once Johnson signed the '64 and '65 Civil Rights and Voting Rights Acts, that the Democrats had lost the South forever, and he basically created what is essentially modern populism. Mm. Would you agree, John? Yes, yeah. I think he very much invented the politics of resentment. I mean, Absolutely. it's odd because he he's someone who 
could easily have been a rather elitist figure. He was super, super bright. Mm. Um, uh, you know, had a brilliant career in the navy and was a you know a Republican um, a vice president, Eisenhower's vice president, and could easily have been a, as it were, you know, been a member of the Bush family in terms mm. of it. But he he w- he had this great asset, which was he resented people who weren't like him he and the idea of resenting a liberal elite and of the indeed of there being a liberal elite who were kind of in control of the culture who had a inappropriate role in the national conversation through that thing and he completely made that up and he's been uh, a central figure in our politics and American politics really ever since. Uh, without question, I mean, one of the interesting things about Nixon was he was raised by a father who was a, a mean-spirited Quaker. That's an oxymoron in itself. <laughs> and uh, Nixon actually got into Harvard. And uh, Papa said no. The dad wouldn't let him. Yeah. yeah, and so he developed this absolute loathing for the Eastern elites. But um, And then when Jack Kennedy came along, oh, my God. Yeah. you know, I mean, this, this is sort of... Uh, Eastern elites, uber alles, and a Catholic to boot, you know, and a patty to boot. But the fact of the matter is, from from Nixon onwards, there was this sense of l'Amérique profonde, you know, the real America and the two coasts, and small pockets here and there, Chicago, Madison, Wisconsin, Ann Arbor, you know, small centers of enlightenment, but basically a division of the country, which then Reagan expanded on brilliantly. I, mm-hmm. One of the things in the book, it's looking essentially at the divisions of the family as it reflects the larger divisions of the country and white male rage as yes. epitomized by the father. Uh, and that was my, my dad as well, very much. Um, but it, it's, it's fascinating, really, uh, going back to that entire time. People forget, I mean, now a New York that has vanished completely the New York I grew up in. And in a way, having lived off and on in London for 30 years, a London that has completely disappeared as well, a London where you actually could be an artist (laughs) and live cheaply, (laughs) where you could come in and you could actually work in a bookshop and afford a life. Uh, Yeah, afford afford to rent Mm. a flat, you know, um, somewhere... In the middle of time, my first job, I was paid five grand a year and, and rented a flat first in... Fulham then in Camden and mm. that elicits a hollow laugh now I mean that extraordinary thing about how global capitals actually change the texture just not just you know you have shiny new buildings but it actually changes the texture of the experience of what it's like to live in a city changes who it is who lives there and that idea of you know you still have it in Germany because Berlin's relatively cheap of people you know young people moving to the capital to have a go at you know podcasts or writing apps or writing film scripts or being painters or musicians or whatever, mm. they move to Berlin because it's cheaper. And, every, you know, it's like someone said, you know, they grew up in Loughborough and, and they moved, moved to Shoreditch because it's cheaper. You know, yeah. it's just, it's, it's a just sort of, mad, and, but once upon a time people did, yeah. you know, you come to, come to London and have a go. And it's an unfortunate thing about money sort of reshaping the landscape that that's just, you know, you describe that to young people now, it just gets a hollow laugh. And you, you've lived in London a, a long time. 30 years, and I wrote about that in my last novel because I, I didn't grow up here, but I felt that people who did grow up in London, sort of, they were like the proverbial boiling frog that doesn't notice the temperature rising because it's put in when the water's cold. And I felt there'd been an amazing amount of change in London, along the lines Douglas is describing in New York, yeah. that if you, I think a lot of people from here hadn't quite seen because it was sort of incremental year on year on year. But the change in London from sort of late 70s 
to to the twenty tens is it's it's I mean it's a revolutionary it's fundamental it's a kind of complete and it's essentially money global capital finance has completely reshaped life in the city yeah and in all cities frankly I mean I've I've lived in Paris off and on for eighteen years and one of my favorite films of the seventies since we were talking sort of earlier is Jean Eustache's La Maman et la Putain the Mother and the Whore and Jean Pierre Léo plays a layabout left bank intellectual. There's a wonderful scene where he's meeting a friend in a cafe who talks about going out and buying the ring cycle and spending the weekend, you know, just listening to it on his gramophone uh, and smoking. Um, and this entire world of, of essentially the city as sort of an intellectual kind of respite is gone. It, it, it's completely gone. I gave my daughter when she was about to do a, a an internship in New York before drama school, I gave her Patti Smith's Just Kids, which is a brilliant book. And I just said, this gets it, yeah. mm -hmm. what it was like, uh, the demi-monde. Yeah, that's, it, yeah. It van it's vanished now, yeah. it's completely right. vanished. So in the great wide open, yes, I'm also looking at that moment, uh, especially in, in the third part where Reagan comes into power. And it, it, it's fascinating in a way that Reaganism cons uh, collided with AIDS. Mm. There, there, there's a, a, a very strange irony to that. Uh, but it was also, in a way, the, the poisoning, frankly, of a certain innocence to cities. Mm. They became, I mean, John has written a brilliant novel in the past about this, but they became basically 19th century constructs again. We, we've, it, it's funny how much regression there yeah, is. The rich mm. and, and, yeah. and the people who serve them and sort of no one in the middle. Yeah. There's no one in the middle anymore. And I was in the middle uh, growing up in New York City, and that's vanished. Yeah. And we were looking, you know, your novel is looking back at that time in 70s into early 80s. And, John, yours is, is I assume, the the future. I don't know how close a future, and I wondered if you even knew how close a future well, you were I'm, thinking. Well, I'm deliberately vague about that in the book. I mean, it's um, because the, I think the main event about that the world I'm imagining it's not so much the what decade it is, is that it's after an event. It's after catastrophic climate change. It's, and it's after, um, the, you know, unfortunately, the trajectory we're on, the International Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, they, um, they make projections as a sort of fan of probabilities. But the, the central part of the fan, the kind of main um, strand of probability, is between 3.5 and 5 degrees of warming i can't remember if it's this century or within a century um and if you look at that if you look at maps of that if you look at maps of the world with four degrees of warming it, it's unimaginable i mean there's whole chunks of the densely inhabited parts of the planet now are uninhabitable and the, and the people don't look enough at maps you know madrid mm. beijing and new york are all on the same latitude you know and that that's right in the band that we aren't able to inhabit when the world's four degrees warmer. really the crops fail um, there's flooding, there's droughts, the sea levels rise, and so lots of coastal cities and coastal countries are uninhabitable, and th that's the that's the world in which they're living in the book. That it's after that in in the book they refer to it as the change, um, but as I say, it's sort of lesser time frame than an event. And the, unfortunately, the thing about that time frame is it could be a couple of generations. I mean, in catastrophic versions, it could be a generation, um, mm. but it's certainly you know within within imaginable, uh, unimaginable change within imaginable stretch of time. Your, your narrator, Cabernet, is very angry. I mean, he's young. I think he's in his, his 20s. He's quite young um, and angry. And I wondered, 
two-part question, really. Did you want to have this novel told from a, a younger perspective, but also is the anger your anger that you've put into him? Well, uh, I did want to... I was very interested in the thing about... Um, this thing about intergenerational feeling. There's a lot of it around at the moment, um, a feeling that older people have a different version of the social contract in terms of what the welfare state provides, in terms of the opportunities. To, and broadly speaking, that's true. I think there is a different version of the welfare state um, for different generations. But I think climate change has a potential to raise that to a completely different level because you can have different generations that grew up actually in different versions of the world. Mm. You, you can have children who are growing up feeling that their parents and their grandparents broke the world. And Kavanagh very much feels that, and he very much chooses to personalise it. I mean, he very directly is furious with his parents and their generation. Mm. I mean, I think there's a question about you can you can some when you're having an argument sometimes especially a family argument something can be true but not fair so someone can <laughs> entirely be telling the truth about their feelings yeah. and yet it's also it's not fair because it's not the story in the round and i think i hope the reader sees that as sort of yes he's telling the truth and on the other hand you know his poor old mum and dad sitting there in the suburban midlands you know are they really the most evil people who've ever lived um so but i i i, I don't feel it so much um my for my own part because our my parents' generation, our parents' generation, lived through lived through the Second World War, and it's quite hard to have a comeback to that. You yeah. Know? Um, uh, yeah. Well, you may have lived through the Second World War, but you know, there's only two t television channels. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, um, and 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 there was that sort of you know, um, almost by virtue of that thing, they had a kind of not exactly the moral upper hand, but there was a sort of trump card they could always play about about whether life was hard or easy, because the answer was that they knew life now was easy. Mm. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. It's very interesting because my father was born at the height of the Depression. And at the age of 17, after Pearl Harbor, he joined the U.S. Marines, who are the kind of crazed Spartans of the armed services, and ended up on a piece of Pacific property called Okinawa. 
Wow. And which was the Somme of, of the Second World War. And in the novel, the father, drunk one night, tells his daughter this story, which my dad told me the same night that he revealed all. This is the fourth Sarkatini. Uh, <laughs> yes. And basically the fact... Memo to self, avoid Sarkatini yeah. in the company <laughs> of children. Yeah. Indeed. Especially with with a kind of virging novelist, you know, with, with, with a big memory. But, yeah, I mean, he, he, he joined up with seven friends from Prospect Heights in Brooklyn. Uh, which was a working class area. Um, it's now hipster central. It's flat whites and goatees and edgy specs, you know. And back then it was basically cops and priests and gangs. Um, eight of them went off, Italians and Irish boys. And he got the job as a runner at the last minute, the day before the first battle. He, he tried out for it and the staff sergeant said, you've got 90 seconds to get back here. And it was an obstacle course through mud. And... Um, debris and trenches and he made it back in 94 seconds and the staff sergeant said the guy before you was 96 98 102 104 you gotta his seven friends died the next day and my father never got over it mm -hmm. um and that generation was extraordinary because and i was thinking about this when i grew up in new york i was born in 55 i knew a lot of people from the 19th century my mother was German-Jewish, and there were these great-aunts, uh, Minnie, Amelia, my daughter is called Amelia, and Uncle Joe, and it was always Tante and Onkel. And they had come over right after Kristallnacht uh, in 38. Um, the Hymans, my mother's family, got them out, and basically they showed up. My, my great-aunt Minnie, who I was closer to, than Amelia, but I preferred the name Amelia when I came to my daughter. Um, she died in 1968 at the age of 98. So I knew someone who was born in Bismarck's Germany um, and who was in her early 40s at the start of the First World War and came to the United States with a cardboard suitcase in her 60s and made a life. Um, I think, you know, that also comes into the consciousness of our generation constantly. Um, I was raised with the shadows everywhere, um, and it, it took hold, um, and it's everywhere in the book. I, I, I think anyone who was born in that sort of baby boom time, the shadow of the war and of the depression and of kind of basically deprivation. And it was also, yeah. I mean, I completely agree with that, and there was also a distinctive thing which is, uh, you know, relevant to the four Sarkatinis, which is they didn't really talk about it. No, they didn't. You know, th th there was that absolutely thing about you right. knew you knew that they'd had these mm -hmm. absolutely defining experiences. I was close to my grandmother who'd been, um, who was interned by the Japanese in what you could call a concentration camp in Hong Kong with my grandfather who died before I was born. And my dad was evacuated to Australia, so he spent the war years not knowing whether they were alive or dead um, and didn't see them for five and a half years. And um, and she uh, she sort of talked about it about twice, ever. Um, in the course of her 80 years and that was absolutely characteristic and I think that had that had an odd force field on our generation that you knew you know you knew the grown-ups were properly grown up mm. you know they weren't um, that funny thing we have now of you know we're close to our kids we sort of dress like our kids we like the same music and lots of ways we think the same things about things like you know gender race all that stuff um, and their attitudes were very different from ours. Their life experiences were very different, and they kept it to themselves. Mm. Very much. My father 
with the exception of the Fort Sacatini night, and later on towards the end of his life, after I started getting published, I would ask him questions. He said, I know what you're doing, you know? <laughs> I, I, and, but my, my father's attitude, I remember coming to him with a girlfriend problem at 16, and he looked at me and said, what am I, your fucking priest? <laughs> <laughs> In that very Brooklyn way of really? his. And it was brilliant. So good. <laughs> so one of my favorite... <laughs> One of my favourite things about that, there's a story about some young bloke getting in ter terrible trouble and approaching the Duke of Wellington, you know, he's the most famous strategic thinker in the world at that point, one Waterloo, to ask him for advice. And, so, and he lays out this thing and the Duke of Wellington says, Sir, you are in a very grave predicament and you must get out of it as best you can. <laughs> which, is a, which is a Duke of Edinburgh, Duke of Wellington speak for, what am I, your fucking priest? Yes, you know? Exactly. exactly. Yeah. But, but again, it was a pre-Freudian world yeah. they grew up in. and yeah. um, Just fix it. And, 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 and this, this is what I was sort of interested in in the novel as well, is suddenly for these people, they, and they also got married right after the war, they all mm. rushed into essentially this sort of veneer of stability. Um, and by and large, you know, the marriages, I mean, there's a reason why, you know, Albie wrote Virginia Woolf and <laughs> he, he, he got that or, or someone like Richard Yates, mm. with, who was brilliant on just catastrophic marriages and having grown up in a, in a doozy myself, um, you, you saw this at work, but no one divorced. And that thing, uh, the generational thing of the the parental yes. dinner or drinks party, you, and hearing the voices. Yes, because people got people. You know, everyone thinks yeah. that, oh, we went yes. out, had a mad night the other night. But that's it was a thing about sort of routine thing about middle class drinking, where yes. people would get absolutely comprehensively rat-assed, <laughs> yeah. completely Hammered. normally, yes. you know, yes. a, in a kind of, you know, three martinis, then bef then yeah. you switch to wine. And then you move on to and wine, then to, yeah. And then spirits afterwards way. Um, yeah. And that, that, I think, was that a gen generational thing about that lot. But uh, and in, to an enormous extent, a lot of them were functioning alcoholics or and often not so functioning. Yeah. I, um, I had my, I remember very much my, my father's older sisters, these two aunts, who were both absolute boozers. And one of them had married a, a Jewish guy, Murray, who'd been in the war, um, had actually helped liberate Dachau. And um, he came back. They had kids quickly. Of course, he went into PR. He got of newspapers and began to smoke heavily as the marriage got worse and worse. And at the age of 38, he had a tracheotomy. And I always remember this. This is a... a, a, a and he drank all the time, uh, which is very unusual for, you know, coming from a half-Jewish family. Mm. But, I mean, this man was, and it was always J&B Scotch. I always remember it, it seemed to be the, the generational choice. And cigarettes. And there was a moment then he, he had no voice box, and he had this hole, and he kept smoking. <laughs> and we would go and visit him in Austin, New York, which was also the home of John Cheever, another kind of paramount of, of domestic stability. And, and, and booze. And booze, <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> and picking up men in, in the toilets at Grand Central Station. But there was Murray, and my father turns to him. He's 42. I mean, you know, they're 20-some-odd years younger than I am now. And my father says, what are you doing, Murray? You want to turn my sister into a widow? And smoke comes out of his tracheotomy. And he's, he's, learning, he's talking with a burp, and he goes, fuck her. And that, to me, was a defining moment of, of 60s yeah. marriage, you know? Wow. <laughs>
<laughs> and he died four months later. Jesus. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, we, we, we could do a whole other uh, podcast chat actually about literature around those sorts of marriages and relationships because there has been, uh, you know, just some wonderful writing around it. Uh, but we're here to talk about two books that you love that our listeners should read as well if they haven't already. Uh, and this is where you get three minutes each and you get to pitch essentially the book that you've brought, why you love it and why you think we should we should take it home with us. Um, so before we put three minutes on the clock for each of you, John, which, which book have you chosen to talk about? Uh, I've chosen uh, Emily Wilson's new translation of The Odyssey. Okay, new translation. How new? Um, paperback out about a month ago. Oh, right, so it's really, really new. And Douglas, what have you chosen? What have you brought? Something slightly more modern and deeply American. Richard Yates's um, extraordinary post-war novel, Revolutionary Road. Fantastic. Right. Okay. You don't have to use your three minutes, but once it's up, I'm going to signal that you're out of time. Okay. So you've got to try and get it in there. How do you feel about going first, John? Fine. You up fine, for it? You up for it? Okay. I'm going to put three minutes on. Then I'll I'll make sure you can see it as well. And you've got three minutes to tell us about Emily Wilson's new translation of The Odyssey. So in a sense, I'm cheating because uh, the Odyssey is one of the defining masterpieces of all Western literature, as well as one of the, o- the oldest, along with its sister work, the Odyssey, the Iliad. Um, but the reason I've chosen it is there are 500 translations of the Odyssey into English, and this is the first by a woman. I mean, that's quite odd numbers, 500 to one. And not coincidentally, um, Emily Wilson's version, which came is out in paperback about a month ago, has this extraordinary freshness and vividness. It's like looking at a... Um, a beloved old masterpiece painting with a layer of varnish taken off. And the colours are fresh. It really pops. It really seems new. One of the things that's so vivid about it, uh, as Emily Wilson points out in her brilliant introduction, it's 90 pages long and properly worth the price of the book just for itself, is that although it's an epic, it's about a man going home. It's the simplest and most relatable motive of all. Uh, Odysseus has been fighting the Trojan War for 10 years. He's set on, on his way home. He gets cursed by the gods, as, as, you know, as any one of us could, and it takes him another decade to get home. But he is at heart, he's a practical, rational man. He's not by temperament a hero or a, you know, a defier of nature. He just, he just wants to live a rational, practical life. He's sick of the war. He wants to go back to his family. But in the course of it, he has these extraordinary adventures, which uh, the, some of the central myths and legends we hear about at school, things like... Um, meeting the sorceress Circe, who in, in, enchants all his men and turns them into swine and falls in love with him and keeps him trapped for years. Um, between Scylla and Charybdis, the rocks and the whirlpool, another famous legend. The monster, the one-eyed monster Polyphemus, who Odysseus outwits and blinds. Or the sirens, whose song is so magical and beautiful it drives men, men mad. And she conveys all this with an extraordinary range of language. She can do the lyrical bits, the vivid character bits, the action the description, and at the same time, there's this extraordinary kind of realistic bluntness to it. And there's one point in the middle where Odysseus just says, I miss my family. I've been gone for so long, it hurts. And so there's this profound core of human feeling right in the middle of it. And at the same time, with all this range and texture and colour and detail, there's a, a wonderful momentum to it. The story really sweeps along. It really carries you just as a narrative, apart from anything else. And I think the main reason for reading it it's the same reason it's always been for reading Homer that was given by some 19th century grandee. If you want to see how much life has changed and how much people have changed in the last 5,000 years, you should read Homer. And if you want to see how little people have changed and how little of life has changed in the last 5,000 years, you should read Homer. And that, that's still true. And <laughs> the, 
the great thing is that there's thanks to this book of Emily Wilson, there's there's never been a better time to engage with this thing, and it's the sort of thing people are often put off reading these great texts because of feeling that they'd be too they're sort of oppressive or too difficult. To do. But the, thanks to Emily Wilson, there really has never been a better time because this book has properly been brought back to life by this new translation. Ah, oh, fantastic! Just under the wire as well, John. Well done. Oh, that's fabulous. That's uh, that, that's quite an unbelievable stat, isn't it? 500 t- translations and one the first by a woman it is, only and, just and now, I, I promise there is this thing about there is a there is a freshness to it it does feel new I really don't know how she's done it and by mm. the way uh, I would have said if I'm in time she, she has a fantastic Twitter uh, account where she <laughs> talk, goes into tremendous detail about about specifics of single words, you know, right, this word because right. Homer he uses these ep- they're called epithets, sort of fixed adjectives that sort of say something about a specific person or a specific scene. He uses them over and over and over again. It's one of the reasons they that scholars feel confident that it came out of an oral tradition. That mm. the bards sort of sung it, and they use these words as a kind of mental memory trick. Um, and there's this word that's sometimes given as cunning or wily or many-minded, or you know, Odysseus has this thing about he's sort of because in a sense, as I say, he doesn't want to be a hero. He's sort of sneaky and complex, and he's always outwitting people and thinking of strategies. And she, and it's in the first sentence. It says, "Sing of this a, a man," and then this adjective. And you, so you have to solve this problem in the first line. And she comes up with complicated. And the, and <laughs> the fact that you can see this on Twitter, her talking about these brilliant cruxes, it also makes it seem very kind of up to date, very, very contemporary, fresh. yeah, very, contemporary. very fresh. Uh, that was fabulous. Thank you very much for that, John. And it's over to you, Douglas. I'll put three minutes on on the clock for you, and you're going to tell us about Revolutionary Road, Richard. Yates. In 1992, it was six weeks after my son was born, and I was very grateful to get a respite from uh, broken nights by accepting an observer commission to go to Branson, Missouri, which is the uh, Las Vegas of country and Western music and um, actually makes Las Vegas look like Venice. Um, it is so Jim Crack and awful. I was on my way back to London and driving to Kansas City, which is actually a much more interesting place uh, than I gave it credit for. And I was in a fantastic used bookshop and browsing around and Revolutionary Road fell into my hands. It was one of those books that was always on my radar. Richard Yates had just died, forgotten author, I started reading it in a very cramped economy seat from Kansas City to Detroit and Detroit back to London. I finished it as we were landing in Gatwick, and I knew I had actually encountered a flat-out American masterpiece. Um, Yates was an absolute alcoholic uh, who uh, also had no talent for life whatsoever. At the end of his life, he was teaching in uh, Alabama. Uh, And basically, um, when they broke into his apartment, his students, they found the manuscript of his novel in what someone called the poor man's safe, his his freezer. And he had three pairs of clothes, and that was about it, and cigarettes and booze bottles everywhere. Um, A man who nonetheless managed to turn out 100 words a day in the midst of his manic depression and his alcoholism. And actually, in three of his seven or eight books, completely nailed the terribleness of American life. I I think it's the only way of describing it. What was fascinating to me reading Revolutionary Road was I was reading basically the story of my parents. I think often we read to understand that we're not alone. And it was two people who meet in in post-war New York who have no idea who they are, Um, middle-class people with not much in the way of imagination. She gets pregnant and they move to the verbs 
and it goes magnificently, horrendously wrong. Um, it's not really Madame Bovary, because April Wheeler is much more intelligent than um, Emma Bovary, which makes it even more tragic. It is a story for me about one of, I think, a central theme that crept into my fiction after reading it, and it's a Central American theme, which is self-entrapment, and how essentially we are the architects of our own cul-de-sacs, and how we, we lash out at the society and everyone else, but fundamentally, we've done this to ourselves. No one has written more devastating marital exchanges than Richard Yates, and it stands as probably the most corrosive book about marriage I've ever read. Wow. <laughs> Again, just just in time as well. That was two very good pitches there. Uh, two very different books. Yes, but, but I mean, I love Revolutionary Road, though. You know, it's do an unfair you? thing about this format because they're all they're, they're all great. <laughs> they're all great. Yeah. <laughs> An odd thing about it, though. No, I don't know if it happened while your if your son went to school here. It was in the British system that it's quite often set as an A level book. Mm. Uh, which my son did, and I think it's actually the worst thing you can possibly do for A level because. You know, at 18 is really, you know, reading it under the circumstances you read it is ideal. Um, at 18, it's, it's, it's the wrong age to read it because it's about, it's about disappointment. It's about mm. life not being what you think it was going to be. As you say, self-entrapment and failure and disillusionment mm. and a kind of middle-aged, a very middle-aged kind of brokenness. Are you, are you saying, sorry, are you saying that, that it's it's about the age you read it then, not not. So well, much I think about a lot of books are, you know, that yeah. you can you can read them, you can read things too early, and too you young. can read them too late. Um, and uh, and your perspective on certain books changes too. That you know, you you think. I remember reading, you know, when I was at college studying it, reading um, Joyce's book Portrait of the Artist as a young man, and Stephen Dedalus is this sort of thinking of him as this sort of romantic, clever pants in character. And you realize, reading it at the age of 40, realizing he's a complete tool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, you know, and that's one of the things about great books is that, you know, they don't change, but you do. Mm. And you see them see them in a different light. Yeah. I mean, for example, I remember reading when I was at Trinity, um, The End of the Affair, which I found interesting, but it had no effect on me whatsoever. Reading it as a man of 40 having made the usual romantic mistakes and finding myself in a difficult marriage and also just wondering about the possessiveness of love and how we all are a victim to that in one way or another. Um, it, it spoke to me in a completely different way. Mm. And I, I think that, that that's very true. I mean, I remember giving my daughter Revolutionary Road last year and saying, give it a shot. And she was 21 years old. And she, she turned to me and said, that's the grimmest thing I've ever read. Yeah, that's what my son said. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that what and it's said, like? Yeah. yeah. And she said, "My God, thank God I wasn't a woman." Then I said, "You get it, yes. Yeah. You have." But yeah. but that was the other thing as well. I mean, it, it nailed that brilliantly. And I, I I saw, and this comes into my own novel because I saw my mother, who was an educated woman with no real sense of her own identity a sort of minor league Jewish-American princess. My grandfather was a jeweler in the Diamond District of Manhattan mm. who'd married this mech who she'd met at her sister, his sister's wedding. And they, they had no business being together. I mean, that was very clear from the start. Yeah. But then they fell into this marriage. And in that kind of mid-century way, you know, they just stuck with it. There's a great Jewish joke from New York, which my grandfather, who was in a terrible marriage, told a husband and wife in front of a, a divorce judge. And the judge goes, Mr. Leibowitz, why do you want to leave your wife? She's a pain in the ass. Mrs. Leibowitz, he's a schmuck. All right, 
I can see you're incompatible. Well, let me ask you something. You're both 98 years old. Why have you waited so long to get a divorce? And the woman looks at him and goes, we wanted to wait until the children were dead. <laughs> that was that generation. <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. That, that's a perfect summation, isn't it, of that generation, I think. Yes. <laughs> Well, I love I love both of these pictures and 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 both books as well. Uh, I love the fact that you you've obviously been so inspired by by Yates, but also by that book in particular, Douglas. Um, and John, I just think you know that the, the freshness of this translation of of an absolute classic and an old, 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 old text as well. Something which, as you quite rightly pointed out, you know, if you want to know about how we how we lived then and how we live now, it is the book for that. Um, it's it's impossible to choose between these two, especially as you put forward such brilliant arguments, I would say. But um, because I've set myself up by doing this podcast to take one home. But um, I, I see that Sophie Hannah and Barbara Taylor Bradford have a draw. Yeah, you <laughs> noticed that, did you? <laughs> I, I could make it a draw again. Could make it a draw. I think I think it's fair to say that because these books are so different and yet so both so important in their in their own ways. Uh, Let's have a draw because yeah, yeah. you know it's d- depressing outside and it's cold and there's no need for for winners and losers here. We're no, both, people we're both winners, both. Mm-hmm. and people should read both. And I think it, it, it's great to point out this this new translation, this Emily Wilson translation, because we also need someone like me needs to uh, approach Homer through someone like her. I think. Um, thank you both so much for for joining me for for the chats and for the film recommendations and for the many book recommendations as well The Wall by John Lanchester is published by Faber and The Great Wide Open by Douglas Kennedy is published by Hutchinson and they're both available now and I can highly recommend them. John Douglas thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.